Hey, I want to welcome you here today. My name is Paul Mumaw, and I'm the lead pastor here at Genesis. And uh, if you've got a Bible with you today, I want to invite you to take it and turn to John chapter 1. Uh, feel free to use the Version app on your phone. Uh, there's also some Bibles around the room. If you don't have one, uh, you can turn to page 739 there, John chapter 1. And as you're turning there, I want to remind you about something exciting that's coming up at our church on Friday night, September the 29th. I'm really excited to invite Brad Gray here uh, for an evening of teaching, a Bible study that he's written called The Restoration of All Things. Brad was my Israel guide and Israel teacher of all of the teachers that I've had the privilege of learning from uh, in the years of my life. He's one of my favorite, and uh, he does such a great job of making it clear. It's stimulating. It's so exciting. Uh, if you've ever wondered how the Bible is put together, uh, if you've ever thought about how do you connect this dot with this dot, uh, this is the stuff. Study, uh, for you. And it doesn't matter how long you've been around church, if it's just been a short time or a really long time, I know you'll be encouraged if you're able to come. Friday night, September the 29th, 6 to 9 right here. We need you to sign up. It's free, but please sign up through the app or the church website. We're going to provide dinner that evening, and so we need to know who's coming. And so if you could sign up this week, uh, that would be very helpful. Again, Friday night, September the 29th. Hey, there's a story and uh, I think it's a story that's been shared here before. I know that I didn't share it, but uh, I think it's definitely a story worth sharing again. It's the story of a rabbi, a Jewish rabbi by the name of Rabbi Akiva. And uh, Rabbi Akiva uh, lived and taught during the first century AD, uh, just years after Jesus uh, lived his life here on the earth. And the story's been told about him uh, and passed down from generations that one afternoon he was out on this walk and as the sun was beginning to set in the west, Rabbi Akiva was walking along the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee towards his home in Capernaum. And because he was so wrapped up in his thoughts and thinking about what it meant to be a, a God fearing man and uh, to live a God-honoring sort of a life. And he was, he was meditating on the scriptures. He was reciting the scriptures as any good rabbi would do. Well, he just, he got lost in the moment. And instead of taking a left turn towards his home in Capernaum, he ended up taking a turn to the right. And again, he was thinking on these words as recorded out of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 43, that say this, but you are my witnesses, O Israel, you are my servant, you have been chosen to know me, believe in me, and understand that I am alone in God. There is no other God. There never has been and there never will be. I, yes, I am the Lord, and there is no other Savior. And again, as the story goes, he was so focused on this text that he missed his turn and he ended up down this deserted path and all of a sudden up at the gate, a very large gate, of a particular Roman fortress. And in that moment, Rabbi Akiva, as he stood there at that gate, realizing that, well, he had gone the wrong way, all of a sudden there was a loud voice that came from above him that shouted out, who are you and what are you doing here? And again, he was a little startled at first and uh, not realizing that this was a Roman sentry guard that was standing up on the wall above him. But uh, again, he was startled at these words and so he just sort of replied, huh, what, or you know, what, what's going on? Again, the guard called out, who are you and what are you doing here? And Rabbi Akiva had a few moments to gather his thoughts and, well, he finally shouted back at the guard, how much do you get paid to ask me these questions? And now the guard was a little confused at that moment. I mean, why in the world would a stranger ask such a thing of a Roman guard? But he replied back, two drachma per week. Now, a drachma is about a day's wage and for a Roman soldier. 
but then is recorded, Rabbi Akiva, with intense conviction, shouted back to this Roman sentry guard, I'll pay you double to stand outside my home and ask me those two questions for the rest of my life. See, Rabbi Akiva didn't want to waste his life. He realized he gets one. And he recognized that these questions had the potential to set him on a direction in his life to live a life that he would never regret. And my thought for today is, what if there was a question like that for you and me? Uh, What if there was a question that could sit before us, maybe even today, a question that had a potential to get us on track or to get us back on track and moving in a direction in our lives, a direction that we will never forget. I want to identify a question. I want to call out a question. I want to see a question with you today in Scripture. It's actually a question that Jesus is going to ask his would-be disciples Uh, as we get started in this series today that sort of started last week, but we're really kind of moving in it today, a series called In the Flesh. And uh, what we want to do over the next few months is uh, we're going to look at, we're going to study the life of Jesus. We're going to specifically study the life of the man Jesus. We want to see Jesus in his humanity. Now, the Apostle John says that Jesus was with God. You can find this early on in John chapter 1, that he was with God in the beginning, that he is God. All right, no doubt about it at all whatsoever, but that he became flesh, that Jesus uh, took on skin, he became flesh, he became like one of us, and he entered this world as a baby, and he grew to become a man, and because he was fully human, all right, and fully human as a man as well, well, we know that Jesus had to make decisions much like you and I have to make decisions. Uh, we we got to believe that Jesus had to set priorities, much like we have to set priorities. That uh, he couldn't be everywhere all at the same time. He could only be at one place at a time. And so he had to think about where he was going on any given day. And he walked from place to place. And from the start of his ministry until the end, we know that he had three and a half years for his public ministry, three and a half to four years. So he had to be intentional in every step he took along the way. And so that's what we're going to do for the next few months. We're going to trace the steps of Jesus and really just ask, what can we learn from his life? What, what can I learn from his life and how can it be applied to mine? Now, we've got a, a map for you this week, and I'm not going to walk around the room this Sunday if, uh, or today as I did last Sunday, but this will kind of be regular place for us uh, over the next few, week, or next few months because we really want to understand some geography uh, in Israel. But if you were here with us last week, we kind of briefly walked through the first 30 years uh, of Jesus' life, and, and we finished up last Sunday uh, by talking about how Jesus left his home in Nazareth, all right, and he came across over here towards the Sea of Galilee, and he's going to travel down the Jordan River Valley and most likely end up at a place near the Dead Sea, maybe near a place called Bethany, all right, which is near the Dead Sea, beyond the Jordan as it's sometimes referred to. And it's here that we know that he's going to meet, encounter a man by the name of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was baptizing people. And John the Baptist is going to baptize Jesus. Now, why in the world was Jesus baptized? All right, because we know that he had no sin in his life. All right, he lived a sinless life. Well, as we talked about last week, Jesus was practicing obedience. 
obedience was very important to Jesus, and so he was obedient in all things. And he saw his, his baptism as a way of advancing God's work and, uh, and mission, and at the same time providing us an example that we should follow uh, with our own lives. His baptism also provided an opportunity, all right, a public opportunity for the Heavenly Father to bless him and really to launch him into his public ministry. And here's the thing. If Jesus didn't have a firm grasp on his identity and his mission by the time of his baptism, I'm sure that he did 40 days later. Because if you follow the story in your Bible, the scriptures explain that Jesus was baptized, that he emerged from the water, and then that he followed the Spirit of God into the wilderness where Satan would tempt him for a period of 40 days. Now, we don't know exactly where Jesus spent those 40 days, but I'll tell you from my experience and for those of you that have been, this is the Judean wilderness, and there's a lot of it, all right? In fact, here's an aerial shot of at least one section of the Judean wilderness, again, surrounding the Dead Sea, extending over here into modern-day Jordan, but also extending as far as Jerusalem. Uh, there's wilderness even to the north. It's not until you get up into the Galilee region where you really start to see the green uh, life and, and produce and all that. And so Jesus is gonna, he's gonna come out of his baptism and we know that he's gonna enter into some wilderness like this for the next 40 days. Now, this is difficult terrain. We, we spent a couple of hours one day out in this wilderness, all right, for some teacher, teaching, just trying to understand what it was like. But it, it's dry, all right, as it looks. It, it was very hot. And again, we don't know where Jesus was for sure, but we can assume that he didn't have any shelter uh, during these 40 days. He didn't have any food or water. We know that he fasted, which men, means that he was hungry, uh, which means that he was thirsty. Uh, add to it, Satan was there tempting him, uh, tempting Jesus to shortcut his mission, tempting him to turn his back on the Father. Man, the wilderness can be a difficult place, can it? And if you use your imagination at all, I think we all know, we all understand a little bit what the wilderness is like. I mean, we all spend time uh, in the wilderness of life, and uh, sometimes the wilderness of life takes on different names. Uh, it takes on names like loneliness or isolation, or anger with God, or these are the seasons in life where we would say we are very confused, or, or burned out, or lost with nowhere to go. Uh, these seasons sometimes look like, you know, out of money, out of luck, uh, maybe in recovery, ready to give up, or no hope. See, the, the wilderness is hard. We all go through it, and, and sometimes we go through the wilderness, sometimes our very own wilderness is really the consequences of our own decisions and choices, and it's those consequences that lead us into a wilderness of life. Sometimes we end up in the wilderness due to the choices of others around us, even people that we love. And, and sometimes, you know what, there's just no good explanation for it. Uh, the best explanation sometimes for the wilderness is that we just live in a world that doesn't work right. Uh, it doesn't operate as it should. And so the wilderness is hard. We all go through it. But do you know what, God... God is capable of doing some amazing things in the wilderness of life. And sometimes the only place, the only place where he can really get our attention and grow us and transform us is in the wilderness. And God's going to do that for Jesus. He's going to do some great things in Jesus during the wilderness. God, God's spirit is going to provide Jesus the strength that he needs to resist temptation and to emerge from the wilderness. Jesus trusted his father in the wilderness, and it was the father that was able to carry him through. And so go back to the map one more time here on the screen. Again, Jesus is going to 
come out of the wilderness after 40 days and end up in this area around Bethany beyond the Jordan. And that's where I want to pick it up today. Uh, Again, if you've got your Bibles open to John chapter 1 in verse 29, this is 40 days uh, since his baptism. Jesus ends up back in this area near Jordan where John the Baptist and his followers are. Once again, let's work through some of these verses starting in verse 29. It says, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now stop there for a second. This is not just a Lamb of God, but John is pointing out this is the Lamb of God. Uh, This is the one that we've been waiting for. John recognizes that Jesus Christ is our perfect Lamb, that he is our substitutionary atonement, as we sometimes talk about in theology, but this is the one ready and capable of taking away the sins of the world. Remember, John had a really unique mission in this life. And for John, his mission was to point people to Jesus. He came as a messenger from the Lord to point, to prepare people for Jesus. And so he's doing that as he makes a public declaration right now to these people that are following him, declaring that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the one who will remedy the problem of sin in our world once and for all. Verse 30. John says, this is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. He says, I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Now, John didn't know uh, Jesus was the Messiah until he came uh, to be baptized. And what happened next, or as he's going to explain, uh, really provided the perfect affirmation. Verse 32, again, it says, then John gave this testimony. And just, again, who's John giving this testimony to? Well, God had given him influence with so many people. Remember, he comes as a messenger. He's pointing people to Jesus. And so he's got all of these followers, all right, and bystanders that are listening in. They're following his every word. And so he's telling them about Jesus. And then he continues. He gives testimony to what happened 40 days earlier. He says, I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen, he says, and I testify that this is God's chosen one. Again, John says this is the solution. Jesus is the solution. He is the one that we've been waiting for. This is the Messiah, the Son of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. Verse 35 says, the next day John was there again with two of his disciples, and when he saw Jesus passing by, he once again said, look, the Lamb of God. Again, John has a whole movement of people, all right, that are following him. And because the Lord has given him influence and because he's using these gifts and using this influence given to him by God, he is sharing this message, this message of repentance and forgiveness. And people are listening. And again, these are people who have been waiting for the Messiah, They have been waiting for God's chosen one. And now that John has identified the Messiah, he's simply letting his followers know, again, this is the one. This is the one you've been looking for. This is the one we've been waiting for. And then look what happens in verse 37. It says, when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Now, here's what happens. Disciples in this day would literally 
follow in the steps of the rabbi. The rabbi would always go first, and the disciples would trail behind. And so they would choose their teacher, and they would follow him. And in John's record here, however, uh, this term for following moves really from just simply a literal meeting to more, uh, uh, to more of a figurative sense. Again, what we're supposed to see is that these disciples are hungry. All right, they are curious. All right, they've been asking questions. They've been studying the scripture. They've been searching and waiting for the Messiah for a long time. And not only them, but generations of people and family members before them all right, that have been waiting for this Messiah. And now, now they realize, because of John's testimony, that they may have encountered the one. They may be on to something here. And I mean, this may be the one that they and others before them have always hungered for. And so look what happens next. And this is where we get to the question. And I think the question that maybe has the potential to make all of the difference for you today. Jesus is going to get to the heart, really, uh, with a question, the heart of what we're, we're, we're talking about here this morning. Again, these two disciples of John have stepped away from John, and now they're on Jesus' tail. And pay attention, close attention here to what Jesus asked of them. Verse 38. It says, turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? You know, this is the first question, at least that we have recorded in Scripture that we know of, the first question that Jesus ever asked of his disciples. The question, what do you want? Or uh, maybe the better translation is, what are you seeking? What is it that you're looking for? Now, don't be alarmed. I mean, if you read that and think to yourself, doesn't seem like really that fantastic of a question to me, like, might even seem a little insignificant to you at first, but, but if you dig a little deeper here, what you find is that the question is more profound than we realize. See, the, the Greek word for wanting here or the Greek word for seeking here is this word zeteo, all right? You've maybe heard us talk about this word before. Say it with me, zeteo, all right? And, and zeteo can be defined as to seek in order to find, to, to strive for something, to, to strive for or to aim at something of importance. In essence, Jesus is asking them, really, it's a question of purpose. He's asking them, hey, what, what's the aim? Like when you think about your life, what's the focus? Like what's the central motivation behind everything that you do in this world? Kind of look at it like this. How, how, many, of you, um, how many of you ever do any target shooting? Uh, whether it be with a bow or a gun or something like that, all right? We've got some of you in the room. I, I, I've not done a lot of that, all right? So I think the best way for me to understand this is have, how many of you ever played the game skee-ball, right? I mean, that's, that's as close as I can get. And in my generation, my introduction to skee-ball was at Chuck E. Cheese Pizza, right? And so you get your token and you put your token in the machine and these uh, wood balls come rolling down the cylinder and one by one you take the ball and you roll it up the ramp and there's a little jump and then there are concentric rings. There's this target and, well, you always aim for the center, right? I mean, you, you aim for the bullseye. You want to hit it in the very center. You want to hit it in the very center of the mark because if you hit it in the center, well, you earn the greatest prize, right? There's the greatest reward. And whether we realize it or not, and I think this is true of all of us, our hearts are all aimed at a bullseye. And whether you're willing to admit it today, I mean, your heart, your desire, your motivation in life, there, there's a target, all right? There's something in this world that you're aiming for. We, we all aim at something. We all seek for something. And so often, 
that something becomes the very central motivation for everything we do in this world. And it consumes our time. It consumes our energy, our thoughts and money. It influences decisions and choices we make. It influences our attitudes and our emotions. Can I ask you this morning, what is it for you? What, what's that target for you? What, what's the very central motivation in your life? What, what do you find yourself seeking? And we could go down a list of them. I mean, for some people, it's certainly money, you know. And we all know the lure of money. I mean, the more, the better. And we live in a very affluent area of Indiana today. And so there's always that desire for more money. And we think to ourselves, you know, my problems would end if I had just a little bit more, right? Uh, for some people, it's a relationship. Uh, it's the desire for a relationship, this need for love, this need for companionship or passion or, or maybe even these thoughts of, well, what I have isn't working and so I need something else. For some people, it's this desire for power, the need to be in control. Maybe it's success, you know, that if you're able to, to achieve a certain status, then maybe people will think highly of you. Uh, for some people, the very central motivation in their life is just simply the absence of conflict or of pain or, or it's just busyness. And so we'll go and go and the desire is, well, how many different things that I can, can, can I be involved with or how many things can I get my kids involved with or, or maybe the central motivation in life for you is just simply adventure. You know, and again, not that there's anything wrong with any of these, but, but when they become the primary thing, think about how often they become the central motivation. What, what is it for you? What is it that you want? What do you find yourself seeking? What are you aiming for? You know, we're so quick to focus and give our lives to things like money and love and success and adventure, but why? Again, what are we hoping to find in these? I, you know, I... I think how often we go looking for significance in these things. We go looking for purpose or satisfaction. Uh, maybe by putting all of our effort into this one thing, we hope to somehow heal the pain that's there from our past. Or maybe we just, we'd say, you know, I just need something to help me forget the past. Or, or if I can achieve this success again, others will think better of me. And, or maybe think about how often the motivation is all about my personal happiness or just something to make life worth living. What is it for you? What is it that you're seeking? And whatever that is, is it cutting it? Like, is it delivering for you? I mean, is it working? Is it providing what you think you're looking for? I mean, or can you say that you have found what it is that you've been looking for? Can I tell you something here this morning? Until we are ready and willing to make following Jesus the target, the very central motivation of our lives, we will never, ever be completely satisfied in this world. Until we are to make following Jesus the very central motivation, you and I, we will never be completely satisfied in this world. And sure, we may experience some temporary pleasures, but when we go looking to all of these other things to do for us what only the God of heaven can do, they will never truly satisfy. We'll never experience that satisfaction. Only Jesus can do that for us. And uh, the Apostle Paul discovered just that. If you look at his words in Philippians chapter 3, uh, verse 7, let me read a few verses here for you. These come out of the, uh, the message paraphrase of the Bible. Well, look, at, look at Paul's testimony. He says, you know, the very credentials these people are waving around is something special. I'm tearing up and throwing out with the trash along with everything else I used to take credit for. And why? He says, because of Christ. He says, yes, all these things, all the things I once thought were so important are gone from my life. Compared to the high privilege of knowing Christ Jesus as my master, firsthand, everything I once thought I had going for me is insignificant dog dung. 
He says, I've dumped it all in the trash so that I could embrace Christ and be embraced by him. I didn't want some petty, inferior brand of righteousness that comes from keeping a list of rules when I could get the robust kind that comes from trusting Christ and his righteousness. Verse 10, he says, I gave up all that inferior stuff so I could know Christ personally, experience his resurrection power, be a partner in the suffering, and go all the way with him to death itself. If there was any way to get in on the resurrection from the dead, uh, from the dead, he says, I wanted to do it. And so Paul says this, he just simply says, hey, I tried a little bit of everything. I've experienced just about whatever you could imagine in this world, but he says, what I found is that only Christ will do. Like Jesus is the only one that it's enough. And so he says, following Jesus now is the only thing that matters to me and, and, and making him the central motivation in my life. He says, that's the only thing that will truly satisfy. You can look in other places too. It, not, not only Paul, but it's what King David discovered. Look, look what he said about his motivation in life. And this is many years before Jesus stepped foot on the earth. Psalm 27, verse four, David says, one thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek. All right, there's that word. This only do I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. He says, there, there's just one thing. Like, I, I've had a little bit of it all and a lot of some, but he says, there's only one thing. There's one thing that I've discovered that we'll do in this world. He says, I want to walk with the Lord. I want to live for the Lord in this world. And then even Jesus himself acknowledged the importance of his relationship with the Lord. He, he answers really the very question that he's asking of these disciples in John chapter 5, Verse 30 says, by myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I, zeteo, I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. And so even Jesus' very own testimony was, I'm not living for myself. And that's what Satan wanted of Jesus and was trying to get out of Jesus in the wilderness. But Jesus says, no, I'm living for the one who sent me into this world my life's aim is to live for my Father in heaven. He says, there is only one thing I seek. As David says, there is only one thing I seek. As Paul testifies, there is only one thing I seek. Here's the important truth for us today. Everything that you have ever needed and hoped for in your life can be found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's what I've discovered in my life. I know that's what many of you have discovered or are discovering as well. Jesus is the only one. He is the only thing that matters, and he is the only one that can truly satisfy us. And if we're going to call ourselves Christians, Genesis Church, if we're going to call ourselves Christians in this world, then for every single one of us, we need to make it our goal, our aim to know Jesus, to live for Jesus, so that we can make much of his name in this world today. And that invitation that invitation to know Christ and to follow Christ you need to know today is available to anyone and everyone. It doesn't matter who you are or where you've been or how much you've messed up in your life or what you've made of your life to this point. His invitation is to anyone and everyone. It's why he was able to say in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, again, listen to his invitation. He says, but seek first his kingdom. His challenge to us is to seek first his kingdom, to make his kingdom and his work and our relationship with the Lord the very central motivation in our life. And he says, and all these things will be given to you as well. And so that's our challenge today. It's to seek Jesus, to know Jesus, to expect more of Jesus. And so my challenge for you this morning, for my life, for all of us, is to make it a priority, to give it a shot, if this is new to you, 
to take a chance on getting to know Jesus and to see if he might just be the one thing you've always been looking for in your life. And we want to help you out in that. That's why we're going to spend the next few months just studying the life of Jesus. It's a great way to take a next step in getting to know him. We, as Ben mentioned, we've got a bunch of connection groups starting this week. You ought to get into one if you're not already in one. We've uh, got some reading plans that you can follow along in this own series. Do your own studying, doing your own reflecting. Those are available back at the info, info hub or on your app. Maybe, maybe you've got a friend. Uh, a friend that's invited you here and uh, that you've been coming with to Genesis. And, and maybe that next step in getting to know Jesus for you is to turn to that friend and say, hey, can we just start getting together periodically? I've got a lot of questions, or I'd love to read through this reading plan with you so that we, I might have somebody to talk to about these things. Don't ever forget the importance of praying and just committing to the Lord. Hey, here, here, here's what I want from you, Lord. Here, here's what I want to give to you. Maybe that's your response to him today as you think about that one thing, as you think about making Jesus the very central motivation in your life. I want to challenge you to spend time with Jesus and, again, just see if he might be that one thing that you've always been seeking. Let me, let me just finish up this brief account here because I want you to see what happens next after the, the, this question. We'll pick it up in verse 38. I want to look at a few verses with you here before we close. There are, again, two men that are following Jesus. These are former disciples of John the Baptist that have now turned and are following Jesus. And, and look what it says again, verse 38. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? All right, again, Zateo, what is it that you're seeking? And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Look at Jesus' reply. Come, he replied, and you will see. And so they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent the day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. And so they're likely going to uh, go with Jesus and probably end up somewhere. They're, they're going to share a meal. And we don't get a lot of details from that conversation and what that was like, but they're certainly getting to know one another but then look what happens next and how John records it because it's so significant. Verse 40, Andrew, we learn, was one of these disciples. Simon Peter's brother, again, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. And look what's going to happen as he comes out of this time with Jesus. Verse 41, the first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah. That is the Christ. Something happened. Something happened in this encounter with Jesus that is going to change everything, not only for Andrew, but the other as well, and then it's going to extend to others. And what they found was that, well, they found the one that they had always been searching for. Can I just challenge you to take the next few months with us to get to know Jesus in a new and a fresh way? And again, it doesn't matter if you're new, it doesn't matter if you've been around this for a long time. But to get to know Jesus and consider letting Jesus have every part of who you are and to even ask the question, what would it look like to make Jesus the very central motivation, aim of my life right now? The band's going to come out and lead us in a final song. and We're going to pray together in just a moment. But... Um, Anyone ever been to Darwin, Minnesota here? Anybody by chance? I'm not surprised. It's a town I read of a population of 276 people, all right? So itty-bitty place here. But, you know, there's something really special about it. It's, uh, it's the home to the world's largest ball of twine. 
It's true. I was reading about it this past week. It's on the internet, so it must be true. Uh, but here's a picture of this ball of twine and uh, the one man who rolled it all up, a guy by the name of Francis Johnson. And uh, I want to read this uh, excerpt from Roadside America, this travel site, and what they have to say about Francis A. Johnson. It says, he was a quiet man who spent his entire life in Meeker County, and for reasons that are lost to time, Francis began rolling a ball of twine in his basement in 1950. Get this, Francis rolled twine four hours a day every day, and he eventually moved this ball of twine onto his front lawn and used railroad jacks to ensure its proper wrapping. Johnson cared as much about this ball's roundness as its diameter. For 29 years, this magnificent sphere evolved at Johnson's farm, and he eventually built a circular open-air shed to protect it from the elements. Well, Johnson didn't stop until 1979. By, the, by this time, this particular ball of twine weighed almost nine tons, all right? It's 12 feet wide. Uh, it's said of him that he died of emphysema, and the town figured that nearly 30 years of twine dust uh, had something to do with that. But Darwin is so proud of Johnson and somehow rolled his big ball of twine next to the water tower where it's enclosed by a gazebo today, protected on all sides by plexiglass. And so if you're looking for something to do on fall break uh, next month, maybe you'd consider going and seeing the entire life's work of one man, Francis Johnson. This is the legacy that we know that he left the world, and I think you could say probably his singular obsession in life. You and I are going to leave a legacy. We're going to be known for something in this world. What's it going to be for you? Will others see and know and understand what it is that you're seeking? Let's pray. Father in heaven, my prayer, and I know the prayer of many today, is that we will make following Jesus the very aim and target of our lives in everything we do, experiencing, uh, influencing every decision, every moment, every opportunity, every interaction, every career move, every move we make in this life. And Father, my hope and my belief today is that there are people all around this room right now that are ready to pray that prayer. I want Jesus to be the very aim. I want to seek Jesus with everything that I am. And so we want to make this commitment today to know Jesus, to study Jesus, so that we can live like Jesus. And that through us, Lord, you would build your kingdom here on this earth and for your glory. We offer all this up to you today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.